invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. And fair warning, maybe for some of you, you you really have to think hard every Sunday, but you have to really think hard this Sunday. Um, Because we're going to chew on what does God's sovereignty look like. And our church, if you don't mind the illustration, I liken it to a trail mix. <laughs> uh, I've actually told people who move to the area and they don't have a church nearby, but they don't know what the French church believes or practices, and I'll, I'll say, you know, you can come on down, we're a trail mix. You joining us would be just like throwing another nut into the mix. And that usually scares them away. You know. In any case... Maybe if you want to do a show of hands or maybe if your belief on this topic of sovereignty is a little close to the chest and you don't want to share your hand, but I'm going to to share three sentences that might define sovereignty of God for different thinkers. And so like I said, if you want to share a raise of hands after I give a statement and you say, yeah, that's pretty much what I believe, you know, then you can just get an idea of what all we believe in here. So... Would you say the sovereignty of God is defined by God not only knew, but also planned and is to blame in executing every single thing in the world, including tragedy, injustice, sin, and the like? Anybody go that far? No? All right. Second statement. God has a plan for the world, and though he knows all events, things like evil was not necessarily planned by him, yet foreknown about and permitted so, show of hands, anybody? Okay, we're kind of there. How about the third one? While God has a planned and a desired end of the world, he chooses not to, some might even say he cannot, foresee every event, and he does this to allow humanity to truly exercise a free will in which God responds to our decisions. Anybody believe that? All right. So I don't have to show anybody the door. No, just kidding. <laughs> What we uh, believe about God's sovereignty is going to inform how we live practically. We're going to look more into God's sovereignty as we weave our way into this passage, but kind of to catch up where we've been. In the first church's day, two of the leading apostles after Jesus, Peter and John, were imprisoned overnight because they healed someone. And they did it on... No, they, they didn't do it on the Sabbath. That's Sunday school. They did it, and they were um, giving glory to Jesus' name, and the, uh, the leaders did not like that. The society as a whole and the government over the Christians, there, there seems to be this cultural tide against Christianity very much in that day. And it was on the course to persecution, on the road to be outlawed in that day, and hated So what do we do or how do we respond when it looks like we're simultaneously on the Lord's side but also on the losing side? And the answer for these apostles laid within the belief in the sovereignty of God. And so I invite you to stand as we read the word of the Lord today. Acts chapter 4 beginning with verse 23 is where we'll be. We're going to be reading through verse 31. We read, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, along these lines, I don't believe anybody is here by mistake. But rather, you have something to say to them today. So we pray that as we have gathered to hear your word, that it would be your voice speaking and not mine. Would you soften hearts to receive your word? Father, many of us, if we're honest, we're we're coming here with problems, and we want you to fix those problems. Father, help us to know that they are fixed, and help us to lean into you and to trust you with our problems, to speak to our condition. Father, have your way in our lives. We thank you again for the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and rules and reigns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I found out that I made a mistake last week, or I... Is it a mistake and not a lie? Um, I told you last week that we were ending a story that we're really ending now. Um, I should have read ahead in the Bible. (laughs) It felt like it ended last week because after raising a crippled man and preaching a sermon about the power of Jesus who raised that cripple and how Jesus still lives, rules, and reigns and he can heal crippled hearts, Peter and John thrown into prison. They had a, a quick but nasty trial, as I recounted a few moments ago, and then they were released. But now we're finding out what happens when they're released still in the same episode, still with all the events in the background, conflict can produce within the Christian a question of God's sovereignty. Because here is the logic. A, I profess God to be all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. But then B, if bad things happen in a world that I believe is to be governed by this God... What does that mean about his power or his goodness? Is he not powerful enough or is he not good enough to allow such evil to take place? Are there ramifications, are there implications on his power or his character? Peter and John, healed in the name of Jesus, this landed them in prison. Don't preach his name or else. (laughs) So they have the heat rising up on them. How do you respond to conflict? whether it be conflict brought on because of your allegiance to Jesus or just conflict in your life, period. What's the first thing that you do? Right 
out of prison, here's what Peter and John do. When they were released, they went to their friends. They were attending a Quaker church, apparently. And reported... No, they weren't. (laughs) And reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When conflict comes, Peter and John go to the body of Christ first thing. (laughs) Other translations would say, on being released, they went to their own people. So the idea was that the first major thing Peter and John did is went to the body of Christ. They went to the believers. They didn't go into exile to gather their gumption and get over their brush with the same people who crucified their Lord. Right? Wow, that was close. Should we really keep it up here? Maybe we could find some other regions to to preach about His name. They didn't do that. Rather, they find solace And they find support in their community, the community of believers. And so they come back to the church, they report what happened. You know, I can imagine them saying, well, you've been busy engaging all the new converts made the other day. Do you remember the the added 2,000 that came to salvation? There was 3,000 at Pentecost and then 5,000 just recently. So while you've been here with these guys, they threatened us. They told us not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They all but told us what it would mean. It would mean more persecution if we did preach in His name. And in case if you've not realized or if you've not put this together, Jerusalem is 0% like America today. So I I grimace at times, and I I feel the pain, but I hear extreme lamentation of how hard we Christians have it in America. Yes, there is some cultural pressure, but in Jerusalem at this time, there are no open Christians in the government wielding power or influence. There is no church on every street corner. There are no Christian media outlets, outlets, books, movies, or thriving Christian culture. They are just a new, small passed by word of mouth, and most of all in the public square, condemned and ostracized movement by both Roman leaders and Jewish teachers. That's it. Christianity's founder, if you will, Jesus, was most recently executed for his views by the government and by the Jewish hierarchy. Zero percent public sympathy in the government. And if execution says anything, I would say at least a 90 percent disapproval rating. (laughs) That's the atmosphere that these freshly picked on, persecuted apostles come to the church with. We got a taste of maybe what Jesus started to go through, and if we keep it up, we can, we can expect to go through what Jesus had to go through. And so conflict is met by Peter and John by retreating to the believers and by praying. Praying first. No strategies, no deliberating, no act now and pray for God's assistance later. But they come to the believers and they pray. But note of more importance, what is prayed about? They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is important because it is a reorientation 
and a realization of who really is in charge. So as I emphasized last week, they just came from literally the highest authorities in their own conquered government. The high priest, the high priest that had been, and the high priest that will be, and every other ruling authority, the alpha males of the Jewish people. And the first thing that the Christians pray is, Sovereign Lord. This is the idea of the title of the sermon today, Sovereign God. So it really weaves the rest of this story together. But in conflict, perhaps the best thing to do is to realize who is really in charge. (laughs) Peter and John needed to know that whether the Jewish authorities knew it or liked it or not, they would ultimately answer to an authority above them, not just Caesar, but the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, his court exceeds all courts. And so the apostles start here. And in conflict, you and I need to start here with surrounding ourselves with God's people, praying with his people, and then knowing that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he knows the end from the beginning. God says through Isaiah, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is sovereign and he will have his way in the end. This is a big subject and and I want to say right here that this does not mean that every single thing that happens such as sin and injustice and tragedy, are part of God's plan or decree, but we do know that even those things can be used to fulfill God's ultimate goal. So we we see this in the apostles, in their prayer, but now they recount the cross. So let's pick it up from verse 24 again. We're going to start at the beginning of verse 24 and then read through verse 28. So again we read, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. First, back in verse 25, we see that they see Scripture as both authored by David and by the Holy Spirit, which is actually a little ironic because the bulk of the prayer here continues to illustrate the relationship between God and humanity in the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. But the the psalm that they quote is Psalm 2, which is what Vince read for us earlier. And the apostles are saying that they have seen Psalm 2 fulfilled. (laughs) And this is not new for the book of Acts because so far... Peter has declared a prophecy in Joel fulfilled at Pentecost. And then in that same sermon, he cites Psalm 16 about the resurrection of Christ. 
And if you were here last week, Peter talked about another psalm in Jesus, Jesus, Jesus being in the cornerstone. So it seems the disciples are realizing that the Old Testament is in fact about Jesus. I should probably preach on that someday. <laughs> here though, they, they take Psalm 2 and they connect it to the crucifixion of Jesus down to the detail. First we consider the uh, Psalm 2.2. And verse 27 tells us that the kings of the earth are Herod and Pontius Pilate. And then Psalm 2.1 tells us that both Gentiles, the Romans and the Jews, or the Israelites, which are the peoples involved. And so it was a conspiracy that went across races and classes, and the description is of Everyone, an illustration of all peoples were gathered together against the Lord, against Christ Jesus. Now, as you think about the gospel accounts, think about the people who crucified Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, was power hungry. King Herod was slightly amused and said he wished to see some sign performed by Jesus, but then he just beat him. And then he befriended Pilate over the matter. Sounds like a great way to make friends. Pilate was a little annoyed, but to appease the Jews, he sentenced Jesus. And then you know the crowds were crying out, crucify him. In other words, you know the guilt, the story, the moral responsibility of all these people. But then we come to verse 28, and we might get a headache. That all these people, with all their sinful angles and all their moral capabilities, they were gathered together to do their own desires and designs against Jesus, but then it says to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Sovereignty. See, for the Jewish leaders, this was about a three-year problem because Jesus' fame, or for better or worse, was going on about three years. For King Herod, he obviously heard of Jesus, but only met Jesus probably for the day, likely the same with Pilate. So this was reactions and moral decisions based upon, at most, a three-year interaction with Jesus. But this had been God's plan forever. Peter would, in fact, write in his own epistle that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So we're going to get a little bit technical, a little bit theological, so hold on tight. And we're doing this because it's a matter of God's character, and it has great bearing on our own thinking when we pray to God. See, I have met people who do not pray because they believe God has a predetermined, preset plan for everything, and our prayers do nothing. And if they mean anything, it has some sort of abstract for us or for ourselves quality. The only reason we pray is for ourselves. But they really have no weight when it comes to God's plan. In other words, why pray for someone to be saved if God has predetermined it to this degree? Why pray for tragedies to turn around if God has a plan for the tragedy to go whatever way He wants it to go anyway? And so some people trying to get away from this have gone the completely opposite direction. Some people say, if I really want my prayers to matter... And if I really want to say that there is power in prayer, we need to go to the extreme that God is wowed by the same things we are. That He doesn't know the future, and that maybe in some big instances, such as the salvation of the world, well, God had that figured out. But to use a real-life example, 
from someone who held this view when I talked to her years ago at Bible school. The same God who miraculously paved the way for two adopted kids from Russia cannot have foreknown the fact that the father and the adoptive husband would then run away with one of the daughters. And so the future is open for God on some spots. And that's what some would say, and I would disagree with those some if you're wondering. Some people would minimize theology and say, well, I just go with what the Bible says. And theological debaters would respond, okay, show me the clear, concise, obvious passage on God's sovereignty, where it's all laid out. Because we open the Bible and we see that God has foreknown the crucifixion of Jesus from before the ages. But then in other passages, such as Isaiah 5, God looks out over his people, upset with them, and he asks, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So I wonder if you see here in verse 4 that that God is expressing some sort of exhaustion with his people, and he's asking (laughs) the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who would in fact know how to answer his question, nevertheless, here is the sovereign God asking, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? As in, how much more gracious do I have to be in order for them to bear fruit? So what does the the sovereignty of God look like? To keep us from a six-hour discussion on sovereignty, I want to first lay out a few small definitions concerning different aspects of sovereignty, and then I just want to look at one aspect of it that pertains to our passage today. So sovereignty is concerned generally with the preservation and the governance of creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That would be preservation. And then there is governance. And to define governance, theologians like James Arminius would break down governance and say that God governs through motion, assistance, concurrence, and permission. (laughs) Those are all big words. We're going to just look at one of those. The first three deal with God positively acting on creation, and then the last deals with, as it sounds, permitting something, such as evil, to take place. You open up the book of Job and you see God permitting Satan to do as he pleases. I want to talk about concurrence. Concurrence, if you know the word concur, I just can't help but think of two doctors, I concur. Um, But it means to come to an accord, an opinion, to agree. It also means to cooperate and work together or to coincide at the same time. Concurrence, as it pertains to God's sovereignty, is the idea that God is bringing something about through the very means of one of his people, one of his creatures, if you want to call them that, through their free self-determining will. Does that make sense? So I do this all the time with Calvin. (laughs) We call it reverse psychology. He's upstairs. I want him to come downstairs. And so I tell him, I'm going to play with your cars. (laughs) At that moment, Calvin just decides he wants to run downstairs and protect his cars from his mean daddy. I accomplished my will of him wanting to come downstairs and his will concurred. Now, what's not helpful in that illustration is that unlike me, I don't think God is deceptive nor is he in the habit of taunting his creation. At least I don't think so. 
So don't read too much into that illustration. A biblical idea of this is if we think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, brought to Egypt. In Egypt, things go really worse before they finally get better. And he rises from slave to basically the prime minister of Egypt. And if you're like, how does that happen? Now's a good time to start reading your Bible. You'll get to read that next week. That's in the book of Genesis. So there's your homework. But a famine happens in Israel. And the brothers come to Egypt. And when the cat is out of the bag and they realize, wait a minute, we know this guy. They're suddenly afraid. Well, we sold you into slavery. What is he going to do? What does Joseph say? He says, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Concurrence. You meant evil, but at the same time, it's not that God even necessarily worked this out for good, but the word is the same for meant. You meant evil, God meant it for good. He had good intentions in getting me to Egypt because I was going to save people. Joseph's brother said, let's sell Joseph off to some slave traders going to Egypt, and God said, let's get Joseph to Egypt to save my people. So, case in point, in back in Acts, we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah 53 has one of the, the clearest prophecies about the crucifixion of Jesus 700 years prior to its fulfillment. And so concurrence is demonstrated in Isaiah 53, verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So this is also the general flow of Psalm 2 that was read earlier. But we see that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. In other words, he was judged guilty. They oppressed Jesus. They took him away. And he was cut off from the land of the living. A poetical way of saying, they killed him. (laughs) But then, here's the concurring part. Because guiltily, uh, morally accountable men did this, but at the same time, in God's good will, as for my generation, who considered that he was stricken for the transgression of my people? So do you hear that? Two wills happening. One with evil people for evil means, but the other with good people or the other was a good God with good means to save people. It's almost as if Joseph is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. Brothers being evil to him while God meaning it for good. Jesus' own brothers, Israel, being evil to him while God meaning it for good. That would make for a good understanding of the Bible. I should preach on that sometime. (laughs) The sovereignty of God can and does coexist with the moral responsibility of men. And if God is always acting to bring about good, if He is always concurring to bring about good, even in the midst of our evil, that should really embolden us. In fact, Peter and the apostles will will move on from recounting the cross to requesting boldness in their prayer here in verses 29 and 30. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Note what the church prayed for. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for trials to end. They didn't even pray for the softening of hearts for their hearers. 
But what they prayed for most was, even in the light of their threats, they wanted boldness to speak your word. The word in the gospel of counts, of course, is being the word of the gospel. Think about the four soils. Jesus calls the seed the word that is thrown on four different types of hearts to receive that word. Or the author of Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the word that the disciples wanted boldness to testify. In direct disobedience in contrast to what they were commanded to by the Sanhedrin, which was to speak no more. Also note that the apostles are not even praying against their persecutors. They're just praying for their own faithfulness in their witness. So what this prayer reveals is an embrace of the very real possibility, and we know the reality, of their suffering. See, the disciples weren't overly concerned with their suffering. They weren't overly concerned with the power that the authorities wielded, even though it be corrupt. Their biggest concern was faithfulness and courage and boldness. Will I remain faithful to you, Lord, under the suffering? Will I be courageous and bold? I pray that I am. That's the concern. Now, I don't know about you, so I'll pick on me. But whenever I pray amid suffering, it's usually to alleviate suffering. There is a, there is a fine line between believing through faith that God can alleviate suffering which is something we shouldn't be ashamed for. Jesus did that in the garden. But I have to ask myself as I read this, am I willing to pray for just the endurance to get through suffering? Because there are times, like the disciples here, where we know the suffering or the persecution is not so much self-afflicted as it is to be expected, if they are to remain faithful to what God has called them to do. You know, God called, God told them, Jesus told them as he ascended to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. Here they are in Jerusalem, and the heat is on. Don't preach in his name. And so Peter stated that we read last week, you know, I have God telling me this, the authorities telling me that. I have to go with what God calls me to do here. A lot of you are in the midst of family trials, relationship trials, wayward family members, health issues. And I think in those opportunities, it's good to pray for both. Lord, if you want to alleviate my suffering and bring healing and bring wholeness, but at the same time, Lord, if it is your will that I go through this, give me boldness and give me trust in you through this trial, remaining faithful to you. Well, after they request boldness, they receive acknowledgement, and it's almost like that of the day of Pentecost. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So that's a sudden and obvious answer from God saying, I hear you. (laughs) And so the church needs just that and they go out filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the word of God with boldness. It's important to clarify what boldness is. I've already alluded to this as we unpack their prayer, but... If you need to hear it clearly, boldness is not arrogance. (laughs) Boldness is not necessarily harsh or overbearing or self-righteous or condescending. I think there's a sinful part of us that roots for these apostles more so on the fact that they're ignoring the religious authorities. 
And we're saying, that's right, they said to shut up, but you keep speaking, you show them. And as we noted, they weren't praying for any harm for their authorities. They weren't praying about those who were persecuting them, period. They were just praying concerning themselves and concerning faithfulness to obey God. Here's what I want you to take away, and it should be very easy because it's the name of the sermon. A sovereign God means a bold church. Because when you look around and you see maybe leaders making cultural decisions that are anti-Christian, or you worry about family relationships, or you have stress about anything and everything, know that God is sovereign. Know that He made heaven, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and know that He is God and there is no other He is God and there is none like Him, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the God you serve. And when He leads you and suffering comes upon you, He will be victorious in you, not the adversary. And no matter what any leader, any authority, or any friend or foe says about following God, no matter what tragedy comes, what situation seems dark and dim, the God who calls you is also in charge. The God who calls you can make even your sin and the world's sin and the world's evil and lead it to His desired end. Because the God who leads us is sovereign and we ought to fear God as opposed to man. And thus we look to God, we also become bold. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that some of the most simple truths are some of the most hardest truths to wrap our head around. It's easy to say that you're in charge. We know what authority looks like. We see it all around us. And it's easy to say, oh, you're sovereign. But as was mentioned, sometimes we profess many things about you that not only are you sovereign, but you're also altogether good and altogether powerful. And sometimes if you're sovereign, why does evil happen? Why does tragedy happen? But help us to know that your sovereignty is redemptive and filled with love. That when evil and tragedy happens and whenever it is permitted by you, you can use those problems to bring about what you want to bring about. You can redeem even our sin. You've redeemed the sins of those who killed you whenever you came to earth to save the world with it. So, Father, we come to you with our problems, trusting that you can redeem them for good as well. Father, help us to to make this as practical as it can be. Help us to know that whenever we meet people on the street, when we have another phone call from that unbeliever, that these are divine appointments where we have an opportunity to be obedient to you. Help us to see our neighbors through your eyes. Help us to have the love and the desire for all people that you have. Father, help us to know that people are watching us when tragedies happen, national tragedies. People are watching us when um, perhaps groups that we don't like because of what they practice. Help us to know that people are watching us to have that heart that you have, to be redemptive and loving. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.